When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Fish Bites, the Miami Herald's Miami Marlins podcast. I'm Jordan McPherson. He's Andre Fernandez, recording on a Halloween Monday here. Dre, how are you? I'm doing good, Jordan. How are you doing? Fresh off the uh, Dolphins trip to Detroit, huh? Yep. Fresh off of mo- being in the Motor City for the first time, I might add. Had pretty good time up there. I mean, Dolphins, it was shaky in the first half, especially that defense, but that defense pitched a shutout, and Tua did what he could do, and Tyreek Hill being Tyreek freaking Hill and Jalen Waddle being Jalen freaking Waddle. Yeah, it was a good win for them. A needed win for them. They're five and three. They're on the right track with a first year coach. And that's kind of my way to segue into what we're going to be talking about as the Marlins have hired their new manager. Yeah, they have Skip Schumacher's on board. Uh, I was going to say about Detroit. Detroit's come a long way. Maybe the Lions haven't. But the city has. I think the city the city's nicer. Than the, I didn't realize that was your first trip out there. But the city, the city's much nice. Gets a bad reputation, but but it's a little nicer than it used to be. Yeah, no, there. yeah, it wasn't bad. No, I enjoyed. I enjoyed. It. I mean, I didn't get as much time to explore as I would on, say, a baseball trip. I was only up there Saturday and Sunday, and then flew back first thing today, Monday morning. But I had fun. Again, I'm most likely I'm gonna be back there at least some point next couple of years when. Marlins Tigers. face Tigers, so right. and again, that's one of seven ballparks I have left to get to. So it'll definitely yeah. be on my checklist. Uh, I've done Comerica. It's it's one of the. It's a nice one, that's for sure. I mean, it's it, it's pretty good, pretty good, pretty uh, not just in terms of the baseball park, but you know the amenities and whatnot. It's a good one. It's mm-hmm. a good stop. So, but yeah, going back to the to the Schumacher hire. Yeah, I mean, we talked about kind of like what they were. Kind of like what they were thinking, right? A younger, a younger guy, you know, kind of a, a hire that probably wouldn't cost too much, but a guy who they hope has that philosophy that they're looking for, you know. And it seems like he's analytics guy in a sense too, which I know that's obviously the trend that a lot of teams have gone and they're going towards. And you know, the manager job itself, we've talked about this, you know, the way the way that's changed, and now this is more you know, analytics driven, driven by that. So I think as long as, I think as long as, uh, you know, Skip seems like a guy, at least from reading about him, that kind of could have the similar, even though he doesn't have the managerial experience, could evolve into maybe some of the qualities that benefited the Marlins from Don Mattingly in terms of how he relates to players, how, how he handles situations with players behind the scenes, that sort of thing. I mean, He's kind of been that glue guy, you know, as a player, you know, maybe not not like necessarily an all star, but one of those guys that you can't that, that every team needs. Every team needs at least one, you know, Skip Schumacher type. And then you could see it on the teams that, you know, won championships that he was on. He was he was valuable. He was valuable. And then, you know, if, if he becomes that version of what he was as a player, as a manager, then I think he's a good fit. And then I think he would be successful, you know, throughout his career, which obviously this is going to be his first opportunity. He's got 
you know, as an organization, I won't say him only, but as an organization, obviously they have a big task ahead of them to turn this thing finally around if they finally do. But, but, you know, all in all, we'll see where it goes. We'll see, if it was, uh, you know, we, let's look at it, you know, open-minded. Let's see if, let's see what he can do. Let's see what, what contributions, how much benefit they'll have as a franchise. But in the end, like we've talked about and probably are about to talk about again, it's going to come down to, you know, moves they make in the front office this offseason. And especially, and something I want to hit on this week for sure, is the player development side. Because I think a lot of these things, I think we, 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 we say that they've missed a lot on some of these uh, prospects. But at the same time, you have, to, you have to develop said prospects too. So, and, that, and that's, that's the key right there. Yeah, definitely. And to get on my side of the evaluation of the Schumacher hire, I had a chance over the past week, I talked with a couple people close to him from the early stages before he became a big leaguer. I talked with his high school coach back at Aliso Miguel High School in Southern California, Mike Chapman, and his coach at University of California, Santa Barbara. Uh, both of them basically gave the same thoughts of the guy that you saw in Major League Baseball during his during his career, his 11-year playing career, eight years with the Cardinals, one year with the Dodgers. Ironically enough, that one year with the Dodgers being managed by Don Mattingly and then two yeah. years with Cincinnati Reds, he was always a guy who kept his nose in the ground, kept doing his work, was grinding to do whatever he could, and always had that little chip, chip on his shoulder. He was an undersized player, so he knew that he had to put in the extra work just to get to where he wanted to be. And they saw that resonate ever since. Uh, his high school coach specifically, uh, my favorite quote that I got from him was, uh, and I'll just read it off here from the story that I posted up on Sunday. I can't even tell you the number of times, regardless of whether we were doing a base running drill, an infield drill, or we were playing wiffle ball in the mud because the fields got shut down. I would look at everyone and say, guys, you see what Skip's doing? Just do it like that. And it basically, that's sort of been the mantra of Skip Schumacher's career is he may not have, he may not, like Andre said, he may not be the all-star. He may not be the top of the order or the cleanup hitter, but he's going to be the guy that you're probably not going to outwork. That was the epitome of his playing career. That was the epitome of what he did once he moved over to the player or the front office and coaching ranks. And now we'll see if he's able to translate that into what he's going to do in the managerial role. And the interesting part on my end, uh, two parts. Uh, he is, I believe, the first manager who was a player during the StatCast era. His last year was 2015, the first year of StatCast was implemented. So he has the experience from both sides of it, as a player and as a coach for the StatCast, StatCast side with the technology. But he's also played enough so, where he has the old school, the old school mentality. Goes, so see how he can balance both of those from having the experience both as a player is going to be interesting to see how he uses that on the managerial side. And then secondly, while he may not, while he has done all this stuff, again, I'm interested to see what happens now that if he's able to keep that mentality that he has while he's the guy, the person that when decisions are made, good, bad, or indifferent, he's going to be zeroed in on for why the decisions are made, at least on the in-game, in-game moves, even though we know a lot of managerial decisions may not directly be made by him. He is going to be the one where that the spotlight's going to be on. So to see how he reacts with the spotlight on him is going to be 
something that I'm going to be watching, especially during his first year, to see how he adjusts, how he adapts, and how he handles it. That, to me, is going to be a key for, obviously, not just this first year, but to sort of set the table for what could be the rest of his managerial career moving forward. Yeah. I mean, ironically, we, I know I mentioned Mattingly and some of those qualities, and I, that's right, and I, thank you for reminding me that he might have picked up on some of that stuff from playing for Donnie. So, but I... I I, yes, and uh, to me, yes and no. I mean, you're, I'm not saying off, but to me, I think even more important is that behind-the-scenes stuff, how he can kind of, you know, it's more managing the players off the field, in a, in a sense, nowadays than than on the field, really, because he's got to be the clubhouse guy. Like, to me, if he brings all those things to the table, then they'll be okay. I think that, and a lot of that, I think that value, too. I mean, th- this is a, he's a, he sounds like the underdog guy, for an, for what's gonna be an underdog team yes. more often than not, and I mean, if if you're looking for that kind of fit, then it's a home then it's a home run, no pun intended. I think in that sense, but when we're talking the critical critically important issues on this team, it goes back to the front office. It goes back to you know what we were talking about before player development and getting the most out of these prospects, identifying them first off, and and hitting more often than not. And on the hitting side, not just hitting on them, but also the ha- being them being able to hit consistently, and that and and that's where you know, you know, maybe I say that maybe I don't know if we're diving into that yet, but I, I think that's the the side of this that that you almost have to look at it a little differently than maybe the prototypical player that they've been trying to get all the time. You know what I mean? Like they've hit on a few of them, but. I, they they almost need to to tailor their team better to the kind of ballpark they have, and while home run power is nice and it's necessary, yeah. but you need guys you need that average. can consistently hit. Yes, you need, yeah, you need con- you need contact, you need gap to gap more so than exactly. more so than the than the no doubt or with the high strikeout rate. Exactly, I mean, and that's it, and, and that's exactly it. You can't have you, you can't get it, keep getting these these high strikeout guys. All the time, you're going to have some. You're going to have some because you're going to need some power hitters and some guys by nature. That's what they're going to be like, but not up and down every single, almost every single one. Or at least like I'm not, I'm not talking necessarily the big league lineup per se because you have some guys like that, like a John Birdie, let's say, or others. I'm talking about like just at the at the minor league at the prospect level when you look at their top 10, 15 guys on the hitting side. They have to be good contact hitters. I mean, that's burns that burns good teams. And I'm 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 using, you know, the one that we we jokingly talk about that I that I grew up, you know, a fan of. I mean, look what happened to them. They cannot beat the Houston Astros with all their home run power guys. They needed more contact hitters. I mean, that at, at any point in baseball, you need that. But especially I think on this team, it'll balance it out better. And and look, this approach hasn't totally worked out. You know, it's produced a couple players here and there, but overall, you need to get guys that won't that'll pan out and be productive hitters in the majors, and then at, and and consistently at, at the major league level. You know, because most of the time, what have we seen? For every, you know, for every power hitter they get, you have a few that have not panned out and have ended up being off the team or still stuck in the minors. Why? Because they're striking out 30, 40% of the time. And there, there's way more of that than guys that have that have materialized, especially. And, and and that's not even counting. Yes, they've hit on a few through trades. I'm talking straight up guys that they've drafted. 
that have not worked out. So that's what I'm saying. Philosophically, I think that's going to be the big key going forward. And that, you know, Schumacher will be a voice in there too, but that comes to the the, the major decision makers in the franchise going forward, you know, and, and whoever gets brought in new after the changes that they've made already. All right. Well, and on that front, let's look at some of those top prospects. I'm going to go off pipelines rankings right now and, or rank them out, go all by their position players from the top to the bottom. Uh, Top position player, Jacob Berry, the first-round pick from last year. He's a contact hitter. He's more of a gap-to-gap guy. Uh, Again, again, yes, he's young. He just finished – he was in low A all year. 248 average, 26 RBI, 26 RBI, let me grab – and 141 at-bats. Second-highest guy, Jose Salas, a guy who both of us have Mm -hmm. mentioned that we are very on board with him. Actually, got to pull this fall league stats number now. Numbers now, 19 years old, young – Second youngest guy in the Arizona Fall League this year. Um, trying to get his numbers. My computer is being very slow at the moment. <laughs> well, but, but, but yeah, but we have the, the numbers, but yes. Yeah, but we have the idea. He, he fits he the is, mold better. Yeah. He fits the mold. Guy after him, Yiddy Cape, fits that mold as well, but also, again, on the younger side. Then we get right. to number four is Khalil Watson, who is more of the, the power contact, power high strikeout rate. So you go down to their fourth overall hitting prospect before you get to – one of those high power guys. Joe Mack is right. fifth. Jordan Groshans is sixth. And we got to see a taste of Groshans in the big leagues this year. And Groshans went from trying to be more of the high power guy to more of a contact gap to gap guy. And we saw, I saw a little bit of that, that little month, that month he was up here, granted, for two or three weeks. Granted, that's a small sample size, but he showed the ability to adjust once the Marlins acquired him at the trade deadline. And then the only other, and then the last two in the top fifteen for the Marlins are Victor Mesa Jr. and Ian Lewis, who are again not power guys. So the top of the organization's hitting structure, they're all young outside of Groshans, but they all do fit that mold that you are trying to that you're saying that they need to start approaching. So they have the pieces there, but they're all also most of them are probably at least two years out. Salas, if he has a good year next year, could potentially sneak in toward the end of the year, but they're all still at minimum two years away. Yeah. And, and, and the fact that there's more of them you see in the more recent, you know, acquisitions could, you know, kind of reflects maybe the beginnings of maybe that shift that we're talking about in, in, in kind of like the, the idea, the, the, the idea of what they're looking for, where you've seen that maybe in the last year or two start to change a little bit. Cause they've probably realized, you know, some of that, you know, just hasn't worked for the first three, four years of this process that they've been in. So that's good, but they need to, whoever comes in in key positions now, you know, that it, it has to kind of follow that. And, and, and you have to keep adding on because as you know, every franchise needs, you, you need depth at every spot. So the more, you know, guys like that, that they can filter in along with some of the power bats that they do have that, that are panning out, but then, and, and then it comes down to just development. Like I said before, like that, that when it comes to just coaches at every level, being able to just be, be, you know, the right guys to guide these players in the development process toward becoming, you know, potential major leaguers and identifying obviously who can and who can't. Yeah. And just the quick Arizona fall league stats now that I finally have them up. Uh, again, Victor Mesa Jr., Joe Mack, and Jose Salas are the Marlins three hitters there. All three of them among their top 15 prospects, all three of them homegrown. Uh, Victor Mesa Jr. leads the bunch, 827 OPS. 11 for 48, one double, three triples, two home runs, nine RBI, nine runs scored, 14K, six walks. 
Joe Mack, a 765 OPS, three home runs, five ribbies, eight runs scored. And Jose Salas, uh, 234 average, 673 OPS, 11 for 47 with four RBI. And a reminder again, Salas and Joe Mack are both 19 years old. They're two of the five youngest people in the fall league overall. So to see that's just showing you where they're stacking up against older competition. Mesa's Mesa Jr. is a little bit older than them. And to see the continued strides in him, especially knowing what's happened with his older brother, to at least see things things looking like they're trending in the right direction for Victor Mesa Jr., that's a positive. He's what now, 21? I believe he is 21. He's either 20 21, or 21 yeah. now. Yeah. I mean, back when they got him, you know, at the beginning. Yeah, he turned that, 21 that was, in September. There you go. Okay. Yeah, back at the, since back at the beginning, that's something that, that I remember thinking was – you know, he's going to get the experience that his older brother didn't because he, you know, coming over from Cuba at already 23 years old or whatever, or, or 22, I think at the time, you already kind of already a little bit made, I guess you could say as a player at that point in your age wise. But when junior came in, you know, 16, 17 years old, it was still a sponge. Like it was like, all right, I'm, he's going to see all the pitching on this side going to start to develop better and you know i thought that was going to benefit him tremendously for you know however wherever his ceiling is now at this point as a player but i think it was going to be very beneficial and, th- and an experience like this in arizona is again fall league down to about what a, a week or so to go uh, about there's about a week and a half two weeks something like that they have their yeah. fall star game i think on the fifth and then they have one more week of games and then that wraps up yeah, so it's been good. It's been it's been good for them for sure. And Mac, good to see too, because you know one of their recent high draft picks, you know, continuing to develop there as well. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or twenty four seven in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, and on the now the transition back to the front office and changes, adjustments they're going to make there. Uh, news from, last, from, the, from late last week. Uh, the Marlins, well, they haven't confirmed the hire yet. They have hired uh, Ozzo Campo from the Houston Astros to be an assistant general manager. And just some background on Oz, he's held various roles as an MLB executive over the past two decades. Most recently, he was the Astros international cross-checker this past season. It was his second stint with the Astros. Before that, he led their international scouting department from 2012 to 2017. And he he had a prominent role in signing all of the following players for the Astros. Framber Valdez, Christian Javier, Jose Urquidy. Luis Garcia, Yuli Gurriel. All those guys are pretty good. Yeah. They're all they're all about to get rings in a few days, possibly. Yes. So no, yeah. I mean, he comes from an organization that's has been, you know, hate or, like him or hate him. Uh they they've been top notch in terms of acquiring talent. That's for sure. You can't take that away from them. And we've seen how important that is. I mean, the Marlins international scouting has improved in recent years it used to be terrible that it you know say what you want maybe the mesas were 
more for for the splash than anything. You know, they haven't got the neither one's made well. the majors, but you're right, it was the icebreaker. And now guys that have come since have uh, have have made some noise in terms of growing and developing for them. And you need to have that because Houston is where it is on the backbone of guys that they did that that they, that they were able to get on the international scene. And then look at others franchises too. Atlanta for years now has, has done a great job in that and, and several others. I mean, it, it, it's a, it's a vital component. So that, that experience alone, not that that, not that that's only what Oz will be involved in, but that part, that fat, that, that facet in the organization will be crucial for them with this hire. If he can, if he can continue to, to, to boost that side of it. Yeah, and on that note, seven of the Marlins' top 18 prospects, according to MLB Pipeline, are guys who they acquired through the international cycle, led by Gary Perez, who right. uh, we saw this past year just had a breakout year. He's, I believe he's the number nine overall prospect now, depending on how the graduation shook out toward the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he finished as he's the number nine prospect heading into the offseason. And then a few of the other guys we talked about, Solitz, Ian Lewis, Few guys who are in there who were at the Dominican Summer League this year uh, got a couple of their names who were guys who I was impressed with. Uh, Anthony Figueroa, an outfielder, Jose Gerardo, an outfielder, uh, Ronald Hernandez, who was a catcher at the Florida Complex League. All again, a lot of younger guys, but also again doing enough to start building up that reputation of being able to develop these guys. And Victor Mesa Jr., of course, uh, and also something else that the Marlins are hoping will give them a competitive advantage on the international side uh, the unveiling of their new Dominican Academy and development complex that they revealed last week, a 35 acre development in Boca Chica, Dominican Republic. Uh, the, the area, the complex itself is more than double the size of the Marlins old complex. It has three major league size playing fields along with an agility field, four covered batting cage tunnels, six covered pitching mounds, an athletic and administration building that has a video room, weight room, and training room. A residential complex that has more than 100 beds and three classrooms and a computer learning center. And this is something that's been in the works for a while. I think I remember back when you were at the athletic, you were you did some stuff looking at the academy and what they were trying to do. Obviously, the pandemic pushed it back a little bit, their, their projection for it. But they broke ground on it last June. And... 16 months they kept in budget, which I believe was about $15 million to get it made. And based off of what the Marlins show sent us when they unveiled everything on Friday, place looks very nice. Yeah, I, I actually was there when I got a tour of the old place. And just from seeing the drone footage of this new place, yeah, it blows it out of the water. I mean, it not just the size, but it just looks... State, it looks state of the art. At least it has the the appearance of being something that's modern, something that's going to help them, going to help those prospects for sure. Um, because the one I went to, you know, I mean, nothing. The, the the people there, great, were doing a good job, and and you could tell it was something cool that they were, you know, helping those guys out. And they, but it didn't. It looked like a high school, you know. To be honest with you, it looked like a you know like a, like any old place you could see. You know, they had facilities and whatnot inside, but. This, this is going to be, yeah, if it's three times bigger, it's going to be three even more times probably better for them in that sense. And, and and good to see, too, because, you know, we talk all the time about, you know, the the things this franchise, the, the challenges this franchise has. But if they can maintain 
something like this, it's only going to, it's only going to help, especially on the side that we just talked about on the international side, where they're trying to get more and more talent, you know, from the Dominican and other places. This is, this is just, you can't go wrong with, with something like this. This only helps. So it's good to see, especially like you said, I mean, for me, it was interesting because yeah, you, you, you talked about when I was there a few years ago, it was kind of cool now seeing the end game of it, you know, because everything back then was just them being optimistic and excited. And it was, you know, there was nothing. It was just the plan. Now it's kind of cool to see it come to fruition, even if it did come maybe like a year later than they hoped. Yeah, no doubt about it. And then to wrap up this episode, just some housekeeping, some key dates to pay attention to uh, Tuesday. So the day this podcast airs, uh, gold glove awards are announced. Miguel Rojas, as you mentioned last week, is a finalist at shortstop, along with the Braves, Nancy Swanson, and the Padres, Haseon Kim. On the 7th, Cy Young Award nominee finalists are announced. Pretty sure we all know which guy is going to be among the three finalists for the National League. Uh, and while the Marlins haven't officially announced it, it's looking like Thursday, or at some point this week, but Thursday will be the day based off World Series dates, that uh, Skip Schumacher will make his debut and be introduced to the media. So when that, when he does get introduced, we will definitely have the story cover from all angles over a few days afterwards. And then once the world series ends of uh, five days after that is when Jorge Soler has to decide whether or not he's opting into his player option, $15 million. Spoiler alert, even though it's not official, I would be very surprised if he doesn't take the $15 million option. And then the Marlins have the rest of their decisions to make with their roster, particularly trimming their 40-man roster from the 48 that it is now with all the guys on the 60-day IL down to 40. So they're going to have to find a way to take to clear out eight guys very quickly after the World Series ends. There is some, There are some guys that are easy decisions to make just looking at it from where the roster stands, but could be a few interesting players DFA toward the, at the end of the day. Um, when all that happens, we'll break it down. We'll have the analysis, and we'll talk about it on here as well. But yeah, for now, the Sh- yeah. Schumacher, if it's not Thursday, I mean, I guess it would have to be next week because Thursday's the in-between game exactly. five and game six. So then after that, your next chance would be Monday. But yeah. we'll have it for I you mean, one way unless, or the other. Unless the Phillies and or unless the Phillies or Astros sweep the three games in Philly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And the way that series is going, oh. uh, uh, th- th- that's just going to be the off day. And then, yeah. you know, it'll get decided the, the day after the day after or the day after that, maybe. Yep. What a great so. first two games, though. What a great game yeah. one, especially. That was. Yeah. I mean, interesting, too, because Houston, you can tell, I mean, they don't blow it. It's 2-0, and it's kind of like mm-hmm. where we thought, being Houston being the favorite. But, yeah. but for the Phillies, good for them. They gave themselves a, a fighting chance now you know, uh, going home for three and, you know, even if they don't sweep it, you know, that it almost feels like they need to take at least two to have a shot at it because yeah. uh, Houston's too good to to drop two in a row at home in, in six and seven, if that were the case. So. Yeah. It's going to be a fun finish and then lead into what should hopefully be an interesting off season. And with that, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Fish Bites. Thanks so much for tuning in everyone. We'll be back again next week.